Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Cove. I'm Taylor Mackett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mackett. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Spoon from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Yep. Yes, you are indeed listening to Not The Footy Show, another podcast coming to you. And uh, we've got two guests lined up for you that we're sure will be really interesting as we talk about uh, the assessment of athletes with a disability and also catch up with Gary Wilmont who ran across Australia from Perth to Brisbane. Anyway, I'm Ashley Morrison. And I'm John Lee. And John, probably before we get to our guest, uh, there's a few things to discuss <laughs> in sport. I'm going to turn my attention first to the Rugby World Cup which I think has been a really good tournament. The one thing I've really liked about it, watching it, even though you're not there, is the fact that they've played on sort of provincial rugby grounds as yeah. well as the big stadia. So whenever you've looked at a lot of the games, it's been packed and the atmosphere's sounded really, really good. Some of the commentary's been, uh, in my opinion, pretty boring. But, uh, you know, look, it's been really good. I've enjoyed it. I've certainly thought the rugby's quite good it's very attacking all the sides are looking to score points even even the english and i mean the very fact that happened in the last game against wales when they went for the try instead of going for the the one point to tie the game or whatever it was and let's face it he's the poor old captains and the coach have been pilloried for that a, a, a draw was no good to them if you look at the way the pool is structured a draw was no good that one point was no good to them they needed to have a crack and execution was poor but the idea was correct it's funny, I was talking to my dad after that game because he supports England. People might be surprised to hear I support Scotland, so I've had a much more painful experience in recent <laughs> times than he has. But the one thing I was saying in that game, watching it, was Wales wanted it more. Wales yeah. had the passion, and I think this is the difference. In, in tight games like that, in competitions like this, it's that pride in your shirt. We talk about it too much today, people saying they've got pride in their shirt, but the Welsh, the Scots, the Irish, when they pull that over their heads, they grow an extra metre or they get a little bit of extra oxygen in their lungs. Same with the All Blacks, same with the Springboks. I just feel some of the English, and I might be putting them down, that it is a job. And I found in that game, they were so automated, so coached, that they lacked that spark of, of individuality to actually turn that game. You, you're probably right there. It was also the first occasion we've seen one of the big, the big nations coming together. It's the only game so far where the big nations have come together. To, and in, in some ways, that's a pity that, those games don't come around more often, but we're going to get a few of them in a row now. It depends how you judge it there, because, you know, Japan, South Africa, the two nations with the most rugby clubs. Oh, really? So, yeah, after South Africa, Japan has more rugby clubs than any other country, and which that was I found is astounding, you know? Yeah, that was a great result for rugby, and it was a great result to watch too. Well, I watched the Scotland-USA game, and I mean, Scotland were appalling in the first half. USA played really well, but then... Boy, Scotland's second half, it was like a different team. So that was really good. And they, they seem to be playing quite well. I, I don't think they can go on and win it. I'd love it if they could. But uh, I still think Ireland are a team to watch out for. I can't see France getting there. We were saying, you know, France can be hot, they can be cold. I just haven't seen anything. Are, are Ireland at this World Cup? Because you wouldn't know it from media reports and stuff. And Ireland beat them. And that, that's all you get. Uh, other t oh, South Africa did this, or Fiji and this, and Rari, Uruguay and Australia. What, what? But nothing about Ireland. They've completely gone under the radar, at least in this country. 
Yeah, and I, I think we have to mention Jean de Villiers. Um, I thought it was kind of ironic that his international career comes mm. to an end because of an injury again, in that his very first game, he was injured within two minutes and stretched it off for the Springboks. And now a broken jaw sees him out of the tournament and he's mm. announced his retirement. And having met him on several occasions, I met him at the 2003 World Cup. And I remember then he came over with the Springboks probably a couple of years later. And I was at the press conference. He just came up to me. He goes, oh, good to see you again. And he's just such a lovely man that it's sad it's had to end that way. I will say, though, that I think it's probably going to be, from a playing perspective, a bonus for the Springboks because I think Jesse Creel and Damien Delende in the centres are a better pairing than when Jean de Villiers is playing there. I was going to ask you whether you thought they would be better off or worse off with his departure. Yeah, it's I mean, just how much his leadership brings to the team. Because, I mean, you talk to the players and they say he is a wonderful leader. But I think playing side, I think South Africa will benefit. I mean, composure is such an important part of modern sport. What goes on between your ears is a lot of the time what separates players. It is indeed. And uh, I know Australia have only played two games against not necessarily hugely highly ranked sides. But... If you were sitting down tomorrow with your Rugby World Cup World 11, World 15 selectors and had to pick a team to play against Mars next week, do you reckon the first question you'd ask would be, where do we play Pocock and then we can pick the rest of the team? Because we've been missing that bloke for a long time. He's awesome. I still worry about Quade Cooper. I'm sorry. As brilliant as he can be, I just find he's also likely to throw you a game away. And he really gives me kittens every time he plays. He's got all the skills, but I think he's he tries too much. He, he a knows show pony. He, well, he knows he can do all this stuff, but you only have to do that stuff at selected moments. Otherwise, it becomes what you do all the time. You know, plug away and do the normal, normal things, and every now and then throw this bit of genius out, and that's when it confuses people and throws the game open. But he does it all the time, tries to be a genius every play. No, couldn't agree with you more. Now, just as we wrap up rugby, some good news for rugby fans actually over here in Western Australia because the Alcohol Think Again Beach Fives has moved to Scarborough this year. Uh, well, sorry, from Scarborough to Cottesloe and is going to be held in November. So that's a fantastic setting. Gets on the back of the World Cup. I think that's really good. Then you've got the Margaret River Sevens, uh, which will be taking place uh, a little bit later after that. They're taking place um not surprisingly, down in Bustleton. And uh, that's going to be taking place from the 30th of January. And then you've also got the other, there's the Sydney Sevens uh, that are taking place over east in Sydney. That They're in February. And then they've got the Summer Series Alcohol Think Again um, Super Series, what is it called? It's a Sundowner Series. They're on the 20th of November and they're taking place at McGillivray Oval. So uh, fair play to Rugby WA, keeping the sport going. Sevens, as we know, is an Olympic sport. So on the back of the World Cup, you're going to have these sevens tournaments taking place all around Perth. Hopefully they get some publicity for them. Hopefully people want to get involved. If you want more information, best thing is to go to Rugby WA. Have you heard any news out of the force over the last few weeks? I mean, it's obviously they're off season. And they signed the, the hooker on. Tom Sexton. Okay. Uh, which I think is a good move. Otherwise, it's been fairly quiet. They have got the NRC going, and after mm. a stuttering start, 
They've managed to string a couple of wins together now. And uh, if the press release is to believe, they're starting their charge for the finals. Oh, good luck. So, uh, look, it would be great if they could get through to the finals again. I think it's been a lot lower profile this year, which mm. to me is a worry. Maybe it's because it's on during the World Cup. Um, and that's the problem that the World Cup's stealing all the limelight and all the media attention. Well, it's certainly stealing it in the rugby world. And as we know, there's other competitions having their finals at the moment. So that's drowning. It's totally drowned out, especially in this town. Yeah, well, I could just on that, we'll move to another sport now because there is the sport we don't mention having their finals. What sport? <laughs> <laughs> and the FFA didn't want to have the final of the NPL, which is the National Premier Leagues. So the champions in every state all playing off uh, on the same day as the grand final. As it's happening, they are going to play it on the same day. Bayswater will be hosting um, Blacktown City from New South Wales at Dorian Gardens, not at their home ground. Because get this, John, and this is the bit I just find incredible. Because the pitch at Bayswater's ground is too narrow. Yet yeah. they were allowed to play their semi-final there. Now, surely, this is where football shoots itself in the foot. If you have rules, they're there to be abided by. You can't keep changing the rules in the middle of a competition. It's just ridiculous because fans just go, well, what's going on? And we've got the same thing happening with the Football West State League, and I wrote a piece on the website about Mandra's plight. Mandra won the state first division. Now, I've spoken to the officials from that club, and they said that, in the meetings with Football West in February of this year, it was decided there would be promotion and relegation from the NPL to the State First Division. Then in April, just after the season started, I've been told, there was another meeting where they then said it would be based upon a criteria. So unless you met the criteria, and Football West said at the moment, only three teams in that division meet that criteria. But then the season started in April... In June, they go, there'll be no relegation and promotion. So how can you move the goalpost once the season started? And this is where I get really annoyed with football. Again, if this pitch was too narrow, then Bayswater should have been told, when they won the title, you cannot play any games there. Your pitch doesn't meet the criteria. However, I've gone to the NPL website, cannot find anything that states the pitch size. I've read the documents of New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia for the NPL competition rules. There is nothing in there about pitch sizes. Uh, NPL, it's supposed to be national, right? Okay, so if they were drawn to play against another Perth-based team, they'd play it at home, wouldn't they? Uh, probably, or would, yes. Or would they make a move because their pitch is too narrow? Who knows? But they would, they, again, they want the game in the evening rather than clashing with the grand final. Um, they, it, I think it's actually more to do, and I think, look, we'll never know, but I would think it's to do with Blacktown's flights. Because Blacktown can fly over now on the Saturday, play in the evening, fly home on the Sunday. Whereas if they played it on the Sunday, they'd have to... Because what happens is the FFA pay for your flights and one night's accommodation. Ah. So when Adelaide... when Sorry, when Bayswater went to Adelaide, their game was on a Sunday. So they had to fly on the Saturday. So they got their night's accommodation. Couldn't get back on the Sunday night. So they had to pay for their team to have another oh. night's accommodation. Then, John, all the guys had to take a day off work on the Monday because their flight was on a Monday. And I'm sure that Blacktown, because they're in Sydney, said, no, 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 no. If we've got to go, these are the conditions. I'm sure that there would have been a bit of that in the background. Yeah, I have no proof. And you can't blame Blacktown for that either. Of course they'd be pushing that barrow if you were to be put in the same situation. 
It's yeah, but, just, but how come it look we yeah, have why no, does it work for them yeah. and not for us and we exactly. but let's be fair we have no proof and i will say that again this is me purely speculating you're pretty good at speculating <laughs> some of your speculations have been spectacularly correct in the past ah uh, yeah and just uh when we wrap up football i just want to say paul parker uh, I'm bringing him to Perth on the 28th of October. There is a function for the Manchester United Supporters Club on the 27th, but you must be a member of the Manchester United Supporters Club. You can check out their Facebook page for details. Uh, and then with the event on the 28th of October, tickets are through OzTix, that's O-Z-T-I-X.com. And uh, you can get those tickets there. There are prices for children. And that will be at the State Library Theatre on the 28th of October. And there are details on our website, notthefootyshow.com. Yeah, just .com. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. You're listening to Not The Footy Show. if you've been listening to our podcast a few weeks ago John and I uh, were talking about wheelchair rugby and how Jake Howe when the enforcers won their bronze medal at the national championships had his classification changed and we were discussing weren't we John about how the classification works and are the classifiers or the assessors probably the most hated people around (laughs) well I managed to track down uh, one of the assessors in Western Australia and so sat down and had a coffee with Claire Tusek and she will share some of our questions and her thoughts on how it all works. Claire Tusek welcome to Not The Footy Show. Thank you. (laughs) Well the reason we're talking to you as I, I think I alluded to we talked about the classification in disability sports on our podcast a little bit earlier and we wanted a little bit of clarification. First of all I was just thinking how did you get involved in the classification process? Um, Well, I'm a physio, and I remember around the time of the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne in 2006, there was an article in our National Physio Association magazine, you know, if you were interested in sport, Paralympic sport, and that kind of thing, just to send an email off to the Australian Paralympic Committee, and they were just starting to get more classifiers trained up, so... I sent off an email and didn't hear anything for about six months (laughs) and then they got in touch and they were starting to train up people in different sports so there'd be classifiers in each state. Um, So I competed in athletics myself so that was my first sort of interest so they got us up to the Arafura Games in 2007 and started training a few of us up to become national classifiers. You mentioned the training, how long was the training process? it was like a course for a few days, but it was always tied into a competition. So the actual Arafu Games was probably about a week-long competition because um, the classification always takes place. You assess the athletes before a competition and then you have to watch them compete. It's another part of the classification. So we had to be there for the whole thing to do that. And, and when you're classifying them, what are you looking for in that sort of process? Basically, it's looking to see are they eligible to compete. So in Paralympic sport, there are 10 different impairments that are eligible that the International Paralympic Committee say. So you can have a visual impairment or an intellectual impairment, or there's eight different physical impairments, things like increased tone or short stature or maybe a limb deficiency, like a loss of a limb. So you have to have an eligible impairment to compete. So generally, we'll do like a medical examination or a bench test. 
so testing to see what the athlete presents with and is that enough, sufficient um, for them to be eligible and if they are then there's rules for each sport as to then what classes they might be eligible for. Um, we then go into the second step of classification where we get them to do some tasks. So if it was athletics, go and see them do a start or do a throw or a run or a jump and sort of see how it affects them. Um, and then the third part is watching them in competition and then put it all together. <laughs> do you ever get athletes who sort of turn around and go, no, 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 I should be classified as this? <laughs> Yeah, you can do, yeah. <laughs> so um, so there's a lot of education of the process. Um, and with that, it's not that we're maybe coming out that they don't have a disability or an impairment. It's just that the rules of certain sports will dictate as to what level it needs to be at for them to be eligible for that sport. So um, I suppose sort of educating them about that and sort of where they fit in. And with often a lot of sports, there's a range within a class as well. So if you think of like some of, say, a like one class, there's sort of a top end and a bottom end and a range in the middle, so, you know, they still might see a bit of a difference there, but they're, they're fitting in based on their impairment. Because so, yeah. I remember we were talking about Jake Howe in, in the um, West Coast Enforcers in that he's obviously been doing a lot of work away from the rugby court mm -hmm. and he's got stronger, but then that's affected his classification. So although in everyday life he's actually better off, uh, he's probably, his sporting career has taken a bit of a knock because he's changed classification. So it must be a really difficult one for a lot of the athletes. Yeah, um, I suppose it can be. I don't know too much about his case and can't comment on the specifics, um, but generally I suppose sometimes when athletes come in and they're younger or they've just had their injury and the injury itself may be still just changing and stabilising as well in terms of where they're at. Um, for example, if we're seeing athletes in athletics with cerebral palsy and they're under 18, they might still be having surgery or having injections of botulinum toxins, so we might not be able to confirm their classification. They've got to get seen again a few times until it, you know, it's stable or a clear picture. Um, the same sometimes can be with spinal cord injuries. In that first few years it stabilises out so there can sort of be that bit of a change from initially if you saw someone a few months out of the spinal unit to then sort of a year out of the spinal unit where they're actually more at their level. So. Cerebral palsy, I mean, that was the one that obviously got a lot of publicity with the basketball team in the Paralympics. I would think when you see some of that and you hear a lot of the people say it's one of the harder ones to probably classify, is that true? Yeah, um, it really depends on what sport you're looking at. Um, being involved in wheelchair rugby, that was set up for people with a spinal cord injury. So the actual classification system was very, or it is very muscle testing based. But now athletes, for example, quad amputees, athletes with cerebral palsy are now coming and playing wheelchair rugby. So they don't quite fit the classification system as it was set up. So now they're actually they're putting more research into that and they're refining it or adding in different tests for the classifiers so we can then more clearly put those people into the class. So. Obviously in the last Paralympics there was a lot of controversy with Oscar Pistorius about the length of the blades. I mean, does that come into your area or is that a completely separate area as well and up to the individual athletes or the powers that be? Uh, no, it is controlled. So as part of classification with amputees, the different levels, we have to measure the length of the stump. If they're bilateral, um, below knees, we also have to do equations that will estimate their height and sitting in height and then it's an actual equation that gives us the maximum allowable height that they can be so then they get that height so their blades can't be 
you know, higher than that, and they're actually tested every time before they go out to race in the call room. They'll get their height tested, so just to make sure that they haven't fiddled or tried to adjust the length of that. So then the technical officials will be checking that as well before the race. If an athlete was happier with, say, a shorter leg, is he allowed to use that rather than the longer one we know is supposedly meant to give them better leverage? But if they wanted a shorter one, can they use that? Um, the main thing we look at is the maximum allowable height, so it's more really going the other way, um, not sort of a restriction of the, <laughs> the, the minimum more. <laughs> yeah. Another one that's been thrown up to us when we've had it on the show is Brant Garvey, who's the triathlete. And, you know, he obviously has uh, is an amputee on one leg. Mm-hmm. And he was saying the problem he has is, although he's very good at the swim and the cycle and now the run, changing to put his leg on from the cycle to the run or the swim takes him longer than obviously some of the other athletes he's competing against. Do you think he'll see some sort of time compensation given down the track? We're not too sure. He's actually competing in quite a new sport, the triathlon, so it's only really just come in the last, what, few years, and I think even the classification system itself. So I'm not too familiar with that one. Um, but in general, it's more really, as an overall classification, should just be based on you know what your impairment and all the other things in terms of your skill and fitness or your ability that way doesn't come into it. It's really, he's an amputee yeah. or whatever they present with is how they're classified. So. But are you asked for input on things like that from the sort of Paralympic Committee as an assessor? Yeah, so um, they have a an advi- classification advisory like board or committee, a subcommittee of the International Paralympic Committee, and they'll always be emailing out to all the classifiers around the world, like when we're reviewing the rules, which get regularly done, evidence-based updates, things like that. So, um, yeah, we can have input, and that goes out nationally as well. So, like, the Australian Paralympic Committee will get information there. So can all get fed back through. Um, and I suppose that's how a lot of the rules have, and classification has changed over the years. Um, it used to be very medically-based. If you're on cerebral palsy, you're in a class for cerebral palsy. So now it's bringing it more to the impairment as opposed to what your diagnosis is. So all that's just happened from input over the years. How do the athletes react to you? I mean, when they see you around, are they happy to see you or is something going, oh, no? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I hope in general they react okay. (laughs) They obviously know who we are (laughs) and what we do. And, um, yeah, often whether we're always keeping our eye out to see what they... (laughs) can do but um you know (laughs) (laughs) and obviously you answered that ad it sounds as if you really enjoy the work you're doing I do yeah so I work in the neurological physio field so with stroke patients I've worked in spinal cord and amputees and I've always enjoyed that area work-wise and then having done sport it's to me it's a nice sort of mix of the two and I get to travel as well so yeah well Claire thanks very much for sharing your knowledge with us thanks Hello, my name is Joe Cortez, international boxing referee from Las Vegas, Nevada, the boxing capital of the world. Listen to Not the Footy Show. It's a knockout. Check it out. That was Claire Tusek from uh, Disability Sport, I suppose is how you'd sum it up. She's one of the assessors. Interesting how she got involved and uh, obviously doing great work and really enjoys what she's doing. But it, it is a really interesting field, and uh, I think I threw a few curly ones like, would they look at that, or would she have any input on Brant Garvey, remember, where he, yeah. has, he loses time in the triathlon, where he has to fix his running leg as opposed to the one he uses for cycling, whereas other athletes with other sort of, like a, say they've lost an arm, don't have that time penalty that he has. 
It's always going to be hard when you're taking people who are slight, you know, when when you're talking able-bodied people, everybody's in the same boat. And like you say, you've pointed out an anomaly there. And they're always going to have to deal with anomalies, aren't they? And I think it was interesting her explaining how, you know, the Oscar Pistorius situation and how they measure the actual height if they had lower limbs that went to the floor and how they assess that. And that's the length of the prosthetic that they're allowed. And I thought it was interesting that you're allowed to use a shorter one, just not a longer one. <laughs> well, you can always cut a bit off, but it's hard to grow a bit extra. <laughs> Now, we're talking about athletes excelling. Uh, the WA Institute of Sport has their annual awards coming up, and uh, they've got the Personal Excellence Award, and the nominees for that are Gemma Beadsworth from Water Polo, Brant Garvey, who we were just talking mm. about, from Para Triathlon, and I'd have thought he'd be right up there, Brad Ness from Wheelchair Basketball, and Sutherland Scuds from Fencing, who we haven't had a chat with for a while. Maybe I should try and track him down again. Now, the Junior Athlete of the Year Award nominees are Tamsin Cook from Swimming, Damien Fife from Swimming, Nina Kennedy from Athletics, Connor Nicholas from Sailing, Alex Rendell from Cycling. Now, the Waste Program of the Year, which is the best sport and to have got the best results, the nominations are Swimming, Sailing and the Men's Hockey Team. Ah. And the Waste Coach of the Year, Michael Palfrey from Swimming, Belinda Stowell from Sailing and Michelle Wilkins from Netball are the nominations. And then the big one, this is for the Waste Athlete of the Year. And the nominations are Zoe Arancini in Water Polo, Caitlin Bassett from Netball, Colin Harrison and Russell Bowden in Sailing, Melissa Hoskins from Cycling, Natalie Medhurst from Netball, Sally Pillbeam from Paratriathlon, Brianna Throssell from Swimming, Matt Wern from Sailing, and Aaron Younger from water polo. So a uh, few sports that, you know, don't necessarily get the limelight, the water polo in there, yeah. um, paratriathlon, sailing. Oh, Sutherland, the fencer. Yeah. Now, when was the last time you saw a fencer nominated for an award? That's good to see. That's but, I mean, fantastic. again, he's had to move, I think, away from WA just mm. to, like a lot of the, the, the athletes, because there's no competition for him in this state. And congratulations to another waste team that was mentioned there, the men's hockey side, the Thundersticks, who've made yet another uh, final for the National Hockey League. So good luck to the boys. Yeah, it looked like everyone was having a good time up there in Darwin. <laughs> yeah, I get the feeling Darwin's the sort of the town not too many people have a sad time in. Nah, exactly. I don't know if you saw uh, Anna Flanagan, who used to be with us, put her hair into cornrows. Oh, did she? She did indeed. Oh, uh, went back to being a 13-year-old in Bali, I think, was <laughs> the comparison somebody said. And her Facebook page was swamped with, do not do this. It looks terrible. Get rid of it. So uh, Anna, though, was defiant. She was going to stick with it. How was the flicking? Uh, I haven't seen the footage, but I just saw the photographs, okay. you know. Um, and then a Chris Sorello had a picture of him with an alligator draped over his shoulder. And looked very, very becoming, actually. I'd be worried if I was that alligator. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely worried. Hi, I'm Derek Underwood, and this is the Not The Putty Show. Our next guest on this podcast is a man who's story we followed for a very long time. He decided he was going to change his lifestyle when he was a little bit overweight and was struggling to play with his children and then got himself fit, ran the London Marathon and then 
on our show, he actually advised us that he was going to do something that John and I just could not believe. He was going to run from Perth to Brisbane. Well, he's done it. After 125 days, he's back in Perth and feeling a little bit down after being on the road for so long. But it's great to be able to catch up with a man who has my utmost respect, Gary Wilmot. Gary Wilmot, welcome back to Not The Footy Show. Oh, hi, Ashley. Yeah, it's good to be back. Well, I just want to recap for our listeners, you know, your story in that uh, you decided you were going to lose weight, then uh, ran a few marathons, including the London Marathon, which at one point you said you never completed a run at school. Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. I mean, basically it was uh, the end of 2011, beginning of 2012. I really got to that point in my life where uh, you know, I was basically overweight, I was unhealthy, smoking a pack a day, uh, had been smoking about 27 years. Uh, doing all the wrong things and doing none of the right things. And um, it just really got to that point where you know, the, the health situation felt bad enough that I had to make some changes. And uh, really set myself a goal to run a marathon. And uh, spent 18 months getting fit and healthy and uh, going through the process of becoming a runner, then completing the marathon. And that was really, when it, that was really the, the new start line rather than, rather than the end point. And um, everything sort of took off from there. And I think... Um, uh, London Marathon was my second marathon, uh, almost not quite a year later, and uh, that was a bit of a dream come true, because I always said, as you said, I, I never completed the cross-country course at school, and I always said I hated running, but I think it was always, um, I hated it because I really wanted to be able to do it, and, and couldn't, or felt that I couldn't, and, um, and so London was a bit of a dream come true, and then it really went on from there, and I set, set myself a, a huge goal to prove to the rest of the world that you can do anything you want. And, and that really led to a couple more marathons. I think I've done four marathons now, four ultras, and uh, yeah, a little bit of a cross-country jaunt that I've just finished. <laughs> you talk about the cross-country jaunt, and I remember we spoke to you after the London Marathon. We spoke to you before you set off on this uh, cross-country jaunt, as you call it, across Australia, but not just to Sydney or Melbourne. You went from Perth all the way to Brisbane. Uh, it, did you ever sort of think, I know you said you were going to do it, but were there ever times you thought, I don't know if I can do this? Um, no, I think that's been the amazing thing, um, really. The, the big difference for me um, was, that, or rather the big change that's happened within me doing that first marathon and going beyond that, was um, the only thing I actually understand about this whole process is that I did know that I was going to get to Brisbane, I was going to cross that finish line. What um, still puzzles me is how it all came together. Because when I, when I first put the idea out there, it was a case of saying, right, I'm going to run from Perth to Brisbane. I'm going to go via uh, sort of Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney, up through the Gold Coast. Um, and basically, I have no idea how I'm going to get the time to do it, no idea how I'm going to be able to finance it, no idea where I'm going to find support crew, etc., etc., etc. The only thing I did know all along was that I would get there. And uh, I think that's really what, um, what created that success, really, because I held on to that vision, held on to that dream, and uh, just took opportunities that came along, and all the right people and opportunities and events just kind of dropped into place. We were following your journey and trying to get hold of you, but you're a hard man to pin down. How many days did it take in total? Uh, we were on the road in total for 125 days. It was 18 weeks. Um, there were a few rest days, obviously, in there. In between, uh, pretty much all the capital cities, we would take a weekend break. Uh, there were a couple of places, even before we left WA, we had a, a couple of breaks. Uh, that was really... Like, the first three weeks was, like, the real learning curve. It was the... The period where we found out what worked, what didn't, what my body was able to withstand on a, on a daily basis or, or just getting my body up to the point where it could do you know, 50 k's a day um, on a consistent basis. 
Um, but yeah, so 125, 100, yeah, I think it was 125 days all up. Um, yeah, but you know, I only really remember one at a time. <laughs> well, you were telling me uh, you actually know the distance between all the white posts. Uh, yeah, well, not every single individual distance, but uh, no, there was a, a road a road worker. There was a, um, basically a, a, a truck that was on its side. Um, I think it was near the 90 mile straight. And uh, he, one of the first questions he asked me was how far it was between the white marker posts. Because everybody he's ever met that's doing something crazy like walking across the Nullarbor, uh, by the time he sees them, they know exactly what you know what the average distance is between. And it, and it was 120 paces on the on the left foot. <laughs> One thing you, all of us would think is obviously it gets pretty hot out there. What was the weather like? Uh, we were very lucky with the weather. The the, the whole, um, I mean, my planning was to we basically left in May, so we went through basically the end of uh, end of autumn, uh, went through winter, and then beginning of spring. So um, actually, we, we did really well. The the, uh, the thing that I was, that kind of caught me out by surprise a little bit was the the cold. It was um, not so much WA when we were in WA on the Nullarbor. Uh, that was fine. Once we got to uh, Seduna and then sort of headed, started heading down to Adelaide, there was a cold snap came in, so I was basically walking down towards Adelaide with this sort of, like blustery wind and the occasional shower in my face. Uh, Melbourne was, uh, you know, the closer we got to Canberra, you know, it got colder and colder. Um, but, yeah, it was just amazing. We kind of went through the whole of winter, and it was cold in New South Wales, but then there was this point where we were heading north again, uh, spring started coming in. We kind of hit the New South Wales coast, and you know, like warmer weather was here. It was just, uh, the winter was suddenly forgotten. It was a um, very, very lucky. We had a, a few days where it was particularly horrible, but uh, no, I mean it was the best time of year to do it. I thoroughly recommend doing it in winter if you're going to do that kind of thing. <laughs> the, the one story you did tell me that I really liked is you actually took an umbrella with you. <laughs> uh, well, there was. Um, I mean, you, you go into these things and you basically, um, you know, you just take your normal thinking, I guess. You just think, well, just in case there's going to be rain, um, you know, you're walking and running. You think, um, I mean, I had a waterproof jacket and uh, I didn't really have waterproof um, sort of like pants or anything like that. But, um, you know, an umbrella. I mean, it made sense. It made sense of an umbrella. And uh, so it was one afternoon fairly early on uh, on the Nullarbor. Um, you know, the, the rain clouds had come in. It was time to do, I think we had one, one or two more sessions to do for the day. And uh, had my tea break and headed out and went, well, looks a bit like rain out there. Um, left my phone behind so that it wouldn't get wet and picked up the brolly. So I mean, it was um, a thoroughly English thing to do. I mean, uh, in high vis and holding a brolly walking across the Nullarbor. But uh, sad to say the brolly lasted about uh, maybe a minute because the, the winds just got hold of it and wrecked it, pulled it inside out. And uh, that's in a, a rubbish bin somewhere on the Nullarbor. What was the reaction to people you came across on the journey? You're walking to where? <laughs> and then that was basically it. You would, you would, um, yeah. People would stop, especially on the Nullarbor. People would stop because their first assumption is that you've broken down. Um, actually, <laughs> funny enough, the, 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 the um, yeah. I, I just thought of something I'd say, tell you in a minute, but um, yeah. But the first reaction is that people, people will assume that you've broken down. They'll pull over and ask if you're okay, and then, uh, or they might assume that you're doing something for charity because it's not that unusual. Um, so they'll check you're okay, check if you, you have broken down or not, offer you water and that kind of thing. Some people offer you a lift, 
Um, but I think probably the, the funniest one I had on the Nullarbor was I actually was stopped by somebody who was asking for directions. <laughs> so I'd literally just left um, that morning, I'd left the Balladonia Roadhouse and this car pulled up and I sort of got myself, yeah, you know, get into that mode, getting ready to say, no, 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 it's okay, I haven't broken down, etc., etc., etc. The window wound down and uh, the guy leaned over and said, excuse me, he said, um, do you know where the turn-off is for the, for the dirt track down to Esperance? And I'm like... Okay, this is this isn't what I was expecting, and luckily I'd passed that that morning. I said, "Oh yeah, that's um, just this side of Balladonia Roadhouse." I said, "So you just keep on going down the road." Oh, Balladonia, he said, "That's uh, that's um, that's just around the corner. That's good." I said, "Well, it's just around the corner for you. For me, it's an entire morning's work." <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that was that was a bit bizarre. <laughs> you mentioned doing it for charity. How much did you raise for the Heart Foundation? Uh, well, so far we've raised um, nine thousand uh, dollars. So, so, yeah, so there's probably $9,000 in the online fundraiser. There's still money to come in from the virtual run medals and shirts. Um, but it is, it's worth noting that this, that this is like the initial sum. Basically, Hearts Across Australia is uh, an ongoing effort. It's, it's um, something that will continue. There's going to be something every year. Um, not that I'm going to walk across Australia every year, but this was kind of like a, a launch for the whole thing. There'll be a virtual run every year, so for the month of May, every single year, there'll be a, a new a shirt for the year and a virtual run medal. Um, very popular with the online running community these days. So, um, yeah, we've, we've got a good start. We're, um, I'm sure we'll be uh, into well into double figures. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, who knows what it's going to be. I mean, my target remains a million dollars, so uh, we're aiming to, to get to the million at some point in the future. Um, however many years that takes, you know, it's just like crossing the country itself, you just keep going step by step until you get there. Massive journey, uh, as you say, I, I don't know how many steps it took you to get across, 125 days, but how do you cope when it's all over? Because you must have woken up that last morning and still thought you had to get up and walk 50 k's. Um, I, I think you sort of sort of tapered down, um, and that sounds like an interesting thing to say, but like the final couple of weeks, um, you know, sort of like, I think like three weeks out, there was a, a week of slightly reduced Ks uh, and a, a mini break uh, at Coffs Harbour. Then there was a week where it was a, we only did 50K days instead of 55, and then the final week up through the Gold Coast and then into Brisbane uh, was pretty much done at about 30Ks a day. So there was sort of a, a winding down process uh, that, that really enabled the body to sort of recover and to be in tip-top condition once, once we actually got to, to Brisbane. But... Um, yeah, no, it was a bit weird. I mean, I had stuff that I had lined up. Basically, on the Saturday, we did a, a 5K uh, park run, so just as the official kind of finish to the whole thing. Um, on the the Sunday after, I did a, a, the, the Twilight Bay uh, running festival at Wynnum, where I did a, a half marathon, and I actually ran the whole way, so I was quite pleased with that. Then, um, the week a week later, we did the first... Uh, with, it's kind of a, a spin-off from, from the whole thing, but we did the uh, inaugural, unofficial... Brisbane to Ipswich, uh, Brisbane Marathon. So I did a full 42k uh, Sunday just gone, and um, so yeah, it was once that was over. I was then like had Monday as a rest day, and then Tuesday was fly back day, and that's I think really when it started to sink in that you know it really was over. That I, you know I had a, thorough, a wonderful week, uh, a week stay in the Brisbane area, sort of being a bit of a tourist and travelling around. Uh, unwinding and that kind of thing, but then suddenly it was like everything's over. So I'm back in Perth now. I um, I, mean, I took voluntary redundancy to do this. Um, 
So uh, the job hunting starts next week, the, uh, or rather the, the, um, you know, the contract hunting or whatever it is. And um, it's all a little bit strange. It's, uh, you know, you kind of, you can, it's really weird to walk down the street and know that 99.999% of people have no idea what you've just done. And you kind of go, well, I've just been through this process. And so you're sort of, you're in this bubble. Now, most people are just getting on with life. And uh, yeah, occasionally it's a little bit of a flat feeling that you get post-event blues on a, on a major scale. And then there are other times where you just get those moments, you get the memories and you just kind of think, well, that's, wow, that's an amazing thing that's just been done. And um, you know, that, that realisation that literally anything is possible. So, yeah, very much, very much a mixed, still mixed emotions now and um, just working through that. It certainly feels as if, though, you're really pleased you did it and it was something worthwhile. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, like on the, con- the flip side to that is like on the morning that we actually left, so May the 16th, uh, you know, I kind of woke up and today was the day and it was a case of going, well, you know, this is a super scary thing to be doing. Um, I have no idea, you know, exactly how it's going to all pan out. And, you know, right now I've got a choice. I can, I can either turn up and take that first step, you know, when, when it's time to go. Or I could just run away, and, and had I done that, then like, my self-confidence would have collapsed. You know, I probably would have had to have left the country because nobody would ever believe anything I ever said ever again. All those kind of things. So then, not doing that and actually completing it and getting to Brisbane has the exact opposite effect. You kind of go like, "Wow, um, I really did put an idea out there, and it really did happen, and you know, we really did cross the country on foot." You know, like myself and, and two support crew. Uh, and all the support that I got from park runners and the, the community in general across Australia. Um, you know, basically, I, I, you know, 5,500 kilometres or, or whatever it was, um, completed a foot journey from Perth to Brisbane. And you know, if you can start with a crazy idea like that and, com- and complete it, then you, you just walk away from it knowing that, you know, that nothing is impossible, anything is possible. Well, Gary, it's been great following your journey, and we have been following it now for a few years. I'm really proud to in what you've achieved and uh, proud to know you, so congratulations. Well, thank you very much, Ashley, and I'm glad I've been able to share it with you, and uh, I'm glad I actually did it so, <laughs> um, so we can be sat here talking about it. And, um, yeah, hopefully uh, there'll be more, more to come. I mean, we're already in the planning stages of... Um, we're going to try and take a team of six to London Marathon next year. I did London last year. Um, but uh, the Heart Foundation have got those spots available. So, uh, yeah, that, that's going to be a Hearts Across Australia focus next year. We'll take a team across to, to London. Uh, I think we've got a $5,000 fundraising commitment for each individual. So that'll be another 30000 towards the million target. And uh, that's the kind of thing we just continue, continue to do. And, uh, yeah, the adventure goes on. That was Gary Wilmot, who has just returned from traversing Australia, 125 days, as he said, roughly 55 kilometres a day, which just defies my understanding, John. Uh, I don't think I'd even get close to 5Ks a day these days. 5Ks a week? I'd, <laughs> I'd be squeezing that out, I reckon. I could, I could manage that. What a tremendous effort. And, and the stories he's gathered along the way as well, uh, and the great camaraderie from the people that have been around, complete strangers that have shown their support. No, it, it is amazing, and I think it was interesting how he said it's really 
this whole fitness thing has changed his life, how he wouldn't have possibly, he said, you know, when he got there the day he was meant to leave, if he hadn't have started, he didn't think he could live in Australia anymore because he would have broken his word to so many people. And that, I think, again, gives us a, a really good insight, not into just him as a human being, but, you know, how serious he was about where he's at and where he's going with his life now. And when you see the government spending $100 million on, you know, getting kids up, you know, and trying to beat this so-called, inverted commas, childhood obesity epidemic, and the guy's doing something like that, it's quite remarkable, really. I mean, as my, my partner, Debbie, said when she first heard the government was spending, that's right, folks, $100 million to encourage kiddies to get up, she said, I can do that. I'll just pull the plug out. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the other thing that was interesting talking to Gary was, you know, he was doing this for the Heart Foundation, mm. and he was saying how disappointing it was in certain cities, the media coverage that that organization managed to generate for him, when you think, here is a guy trying to raise money for them. The least you can do is get the media outlets down there. I mean, in Melbourne, he had seven, nine, and ten all there when he arrived. So he said, you know, in some cities, they really embraced it. Uh, New South Wales, they missed him completely. Yeah, it's the most popular state in the country where you'd think he'd probably be able to raise the most money. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's you a, just shake your head, pity. don't you? Well, especially when you consider these organisations do have a lot of pull. And, uh, and when they shake the rattle, then the news organisations fairly well run along to it, which is a disappointment. Something else that's been disappointing, actually, um, the Australian Cricket Tour Bangladesh. Once again... Religion and politics and sport collide, and it's just an absolute tragedy that Australia would be on the verge of not touring, or probably not touring. Um, and I mean, ideologically, I am—I would be a tourer. I don't believe that you can give in to these people, and you can't. But I'm not selected to tour, so I, obviously you've got to have understanding for the players who have families, etc. But it's when sport gets held hostage by cretins like this it's just terribly sad I, I think you're right it comes down in that situation to your personal position mm. and i can understand athletes with wives and children who decide that no it's not worth it uh, but i also feel for those guys who've been selected for their first tour and the thing is fate can be a funny thing they've been selected for this the sheffield shield season could start they go out of form and they never get picked again that's right and, you know, that's terrible. Well, look at all the people that missed out on going to the Olympics in 1980. And when you hear some of them talk about the disappointment and the fact that that was their only chance and it was taken away from them for politically motivated reasons, and they're quite a lot of them are still bitter about it. I know. I've spoken to some of the hockey play mm. people, you know, and it... Uh, well, you had another Olympics into Rick Charlesworth's record. Well, he was captain of the team it's, that year yeah. as well. Uh, it, it, it's just a sad situation... My personal belief is you do have to tour because you can't let them win and not touring is letting these idiots win. I think, you know, you, you mentioned the 1980 Olympics and it, it's a really funny one and how America put pressure on so many nations mm. not to go. And when I was writing Azuma Nelson's book, that was one of the things I was researching because there was actually a meeting held in the Netherlands where the American president basically asked all of the African nations not to attend the games. And when I, because Azuma never went, he was meant to be the favorite for the gold medal in the featherweight division. 
didn't go and it was the one thing that was taken away from him in that he didn't go to an Olympic Games and he felt very bitter. He said it was because of apartheid. So, but the funny thing was I wrote to the IOC and said, you know, can you tell me why Ghana didn't attend the Games? And they came back to me, their historian said, I'm afraid we can't because they never actually replied to the letter of invitation. <laughs> So they didn't get an RSVP. No, and apparently, you know, all of the countries get a letter of invitation. They said Ghana just didn't reply. Well, yeah. But I think, you know, it was a mixed one with them in that particular era. But again, very, very sad, I think, when athletes have trained so hard. And I can understand those who decide to compete under the Olympic flag, even if their country won't let, you know, lets them not go, as happened in 1980. I think it was the most ever mm. number of athletes who walked behind the Olympic flag rather than the flag of their country. And, and we have seen that in, in recent years where countries that have been in a bit of turmoil, etc., their athletes have marched behind the Olympic flag. I think I can't remember which country it was at the last Olympics. There was two or three athletes that were there. A couple of Palestine. I'm not sure. I think there might have been. Yeah, Palestinians. I think Palestinians had yeah. a couple from Maybe. memory. You know, sport is about people, and and w when you take sport away from the people and try and manipulate it for political reasons, it's never good. But I think I think that's the essence. Is you you play sport for the thrill of it, the enjoyment and the interaction with other people. And sometimes that interaction can be negative on a pitch and it can fester over afterwards. That's life. Life is like that, mm. you know? Business is like that. But it's just, I think sometimes we lose sight of what it's all about. I mean, one of the most courageous decisions in sport is the, for the Olympic Games to continue in 1972 after the tragedy of the, the Israeli athletes. And they made that conscious decision that, no, we're not going to be kowtow to this. We're going to stand above it and stronger than it and show these people that we're, we're bigger than that. And that's there's few sports administrators that should take some lessons for them from those sorts of situations. I remember that clearly as a young boy and I've watched the documentary mm. about it now. There's a brilliant documentary on it that explains how the decisions were made, what actions were taken and uh, yeah, credit to those people. I mean, if you tried to pull that now, I wonder what the reaction was from people would be. You know, it would be very interesting to see what public opinion would be. Times have changed. Haven't they? Well, that's probably all we've got time for. We hope you've enjoyed this show. And uh, Oh, I do have one more before we you? say goodbye. Breaking news, the Iranian women's soccer team, football team, sorry, a uh, bit of trouble brewing there, Ashley. We're talking about people being able to qualify earlier. You would think that one of the key criteria to qualify for a woman's team would to be a woman. Turns out there's several of the Iranians that don't actually qualify as a woman under the woman banner. They're men. So we'll see how that plays out over the next uh, few weeks and uh, exactly what FIFA comes up with because, of course, a lot of those girls play in the traditional Muslim headdress. And we might see a, a bit of a storm brewing over whether they'll be allowed to do that in the future considering the rotting that has obviously been going on. And Mr Blatter also has announced that he thinks he may well stand when he's meant to be stepping down no. in February. <laughs> is Sepp going back on his word? Oh, he just said if nobody comes forward, then I might <laughs> be forced to uh, stand nobody again. Nobody comes forward. Sepp, I'll run for it. If it means you're leaving, I will run for the FIFA presidency. And guess what? I'll do it for a lot less than you did. Uh, well, are you going to still look after Michel Platini when he... You know, Needs Michelle or Michael? <laughs> oh, it's, Mich it's a masculine Michelle in French, isn't it? Uh, maybe not. 
Well, that is definitely enough for the show this week. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed it and uh, we'll be back soon. And again, uh, if you're listening to it through the Game Sports Bar, we thank them for sharing their po- our podcast with you. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. See ya. We'll be back next week. <laughs>